Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silken in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano, who is continuing his sojourn in Virginia. Uh, how are things in Virginia, Frank? They are fine, David. It's not a sojourn. I'm working very hard. <laughs> I'm sure as, you are. You're having... not, as, not as hard as you, I suspect. Given <laughs> <you're>... <laughs> well, you, you are doing important research and, and uh, you're in the right place to do it. So it's, it's, it's good you're able to do that. Uh, yes, it is. I mean, I'm doing research, how important it is. I, I will leave it to the reader to decide eventually, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> right. Um, Last week, uh, the United States narrowly averted a what would have been a catastrophic railroad strike from an economic perspective as railroad workers across the country were just about to go on strike to protest some pretty awful working conditions, it sounded like. Uh, so we thought this would be a good opportunity to talk about the history of railroads in the United States, in particular about the relationship between railroads and, and labor, because that seems to have been a very big issue really throughout the history of railroads in the United States. Um, and, I'm, and many of our listeners will know there have been a series of railroad strikes also in the UK that have uh, over the past past year or so. So we're, we're in an interesting place for transportation and labor and thinking about the relationship between them. Yeah, I mean, the strikes in the UK are continuing. Am I? That, that's yes. correct. I mean, there's a new next one is October 1st. That sounds right. Then there's, then there's sporadic strikes, I think, scheduled ahead. So, uh, you know, one of the big differences, I think, between the two is the railroad strikes in the US are primarily about um, striking on, on freight trains. Whereas the ones in the UK are primarily about strikes on, on passenger trains. I think it speaks to the ways in which the two countries use railroads in a very different way. That's right. I mean, the, the rail network in the UK is extensive and heavily used, uh, but it's mainly used for passenger travel uh, and moving people around the country. And it's quite efficient at doing that. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the US, there is a passenger sector, of course, but it's uh, but the freight sector, the freight uh, rail sector is much, much more important, I think, in the US than uh, in the UK and then in other uh, developed industrialized countries. So um, uh, the most recent figure I came across in, in doing the reading for this uh, episode is that 43% of American freight traffic is moved by rail, uh, which is far higher than in other G7 countries, for example. So, so the rail network remains very, really important in the United States, but it's used in a very different way than it is in the UK, for example, and in, I would assume in most European countries. Yeah, well, I think the geography obviously has a, has a great deal to do with that, you know, that, that if you're moving goods around the UK, um, you can move them by rail, but you can also move them by barge and you can move them by sea. And it's often cheaper to do that. Um, and by truck. And by truck. But but for that, those longer distance hauls, whereas for the interior in the United States, you, you have to move things by rail. When I lived in North Dakota, occasionally there'd be these freight trains that would pass by. Frequently, the freight trains would pass by and they would last for half an hour. Just the, you know, endlessly long carrying tons and tons of material. Yeah, I, I'm struck by that. So I'm here in Charlottesville at the moment. And uh, you know, I've been here many, many times, as you know. And, you know, Amtrak passes through with passenger trains a couple times a day, and those are fine. But freight trains pass through 
through on the, the line that goes through Charlottesville. And mm-hmm. they are extraordinarily long, those trains. I mean, it does give you a sense, that as, as you just said, from your, your North Dakota time. And I suspect that geography is the answer and that uh, I didn't do enough uh, uh, read. I didn't do enough. Uh, transnational reading for this uh, episode, I have to confess, David, but I suspect that the number two country in the G7 for freight traffic is probably Canada for the very sa- for, for that very reason. Yeah. Um, but but uh, yeah, so it's uh, interesting. Interesting. So there's an interesting kind of transatlantic contrast there, I think. And, and there's a contrast, I think, also thinking about the the passenger rail that many countries have adopted high speed rail for for passenger rail, uh, not so much the UK, but. Japan and France and, and Germany and other places have high-speed passenger rail in the U.S. for the most part does not, um, which may, there may be a future in that, but at least there is a present in that. Yeah, and, and that's perhaps where geography is working against the United States. Uh, you'd say, well, hold on, in a large country, in an extensive country, high-speed rail makes more sense, mm. but, but building it as a major undertaking and in a place where um, either airplanes or the car are, have, have emerged as the primary means by which uh, people move from place to place, uh, the kind of capital outlay, outlay that will be required, especially in such an extensive uh, country, it probably works against that. Because you hear about, oh, well, if we had high-speed rail from New York to Chicago, that would be great. And it would be great. But at the moment, um, you know, who, who would know where to start? Uh, my daughter just visited me here. She she lives in London, but she she's in the United States this week for work. And she got the train down on Friday from Penn Station in New York down to Charlottesville, where I am. And that should have taken seven and a half hours. Uh, no, she got the local as opposed to the Acela Express. Sure. The Acela Express is quite good in the Northeast, as you probably know, uh, at least for getting between Boston and Washington. But um, she got the local because it goes all the way to, to Charlottesville. And that trip that should have taken seven hours ended up taking nine and a half hours just because it was delayed and so on. It was it was fine in the end she got there i quite like amtrak do you like amtrak i love amtrak i like amtrak uh well so i've ridden lots of amtrak in the in the northeast uh which i've enjoyed and have been been very happy with the service uh, i like riding trains um the rest of the country is less good uh, just in terms of my experience, in terms of, of getting places at the time I want to get there. Um, yeah, some of the delays get exponentially longer when you're traveling through the Midwest. I have a controversial take. Which is? Riding Amtrak is immensely more pleasant than taking any passenger train in the UK. UK passenger trains are over, they're usually overcrowded. People don't behave. People on UK trains are not very nice. British people, despite their reputation for politeness, are not polite when they're on trains. They're often drunk and they're often rude. And and the the, the passenger experience on Amtrak is superior to the passenger experience on. I won't say all British trains. I haven't ridden all British trains, but certainly most of the British trains that I've been on. Do you, do you have a response to that, or are you going to stay? Uh, I'm I'm. I think the the quiet car on the Acela is quite nice. I don't want to make a, a blanket comparison between the two because they're often very, very different um, just in terms of, of depending what part of the country you're taking the train in. Uh, but, 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 at- but sorry, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not no, giving this you're up. Not done. Because you're I not would done. say the Northeast of the United States in terms of its industrial history, the age of the infrastructure, et cetera, is the bit that is most like the UK. So I do think it is comparing like for like. And the populations are probably similar. 
Um, so so I, I, I'm going to stand by okay. this and say that All right. Amtrak, and I, yeah, most of my Amtrak riding has been in the Northeast of the United States as well, a little bit on the West Coast. Uh, but, but I would say the, the, the passenger experience is superior on Amtrak to most British trains. Okay, well, uh, I'm, I'm not going to debate you on that one. Um, right, so let's talk Come about at me, people. come at me, listeners. <laughs> people who have strong feelings about the quality of train service in both countries, please let Frank know. Um, right, so let's talk about the, the history of, of railroads, because I think that the history of railroads and the history of labor in the United States are very much sort of interconnected. Um, and railroads really in some ways were the first big employer in the United States, thinking about the development of railroads in the 19th century, both in terms of building the railroads and, and staffing the, the trains themselves. And these were the first big major you know, industrial employers were, were railroads. Uh, and the first employers that really, on a significant way, were, were national employers cutting across state lines. Yeah, I mean, there, there's, I, I guess, uh, thinking back to my graduate school days and studying 19th century history in some detail at that point, railroads were both, if you'll forgive the pun, the engines of economic growth but also and, and industrial development, but also an industry in themselves. So they were both, they facilitated the industrial development of the country while also just as a sector of the of economic or as a, an area of economic activity, you know, generated incredible uh, industrial development and economic growth. David, I, I mean, you're our 19th century guy. Um, we have tramways and tram roads and things like this in the seventh in the eight, 17th and 18th centuries, but I don't think we really need to worry about those. Um, let me put a provocative statement to you. I'm obviously feeling uh, bullish this morning uh, okay. with, my, with my opinions. <laughs> It's this big mug of green tea I'm drinking. Um, our railroads, is the history of railroads the best way to approach and understand the history of the United States in the 19th century? Discuss. Discuss. That's um, an exam question for you. Right. Okay, good. Well, I, so I think railroads are fundamental, as you point out, for economic development, but they are profoundly insightful for making sense of both labor and I think race in in the 19th century. Uh, and I will give a, a few examples uh, to sort of support this. Um, many listeners are familiar with the, the legend of John Henry or the song. Frank, do you want to sing for us? Uh, no, no, but I'm familiar no, okay. with it. Yes. Okay. Uh, but if for listeners who are not familiar, there are many renditions of the song. Uh, the Bruce Springsteen version is quite good. So if you want to uh, go along with that. Um, According to historian Scott Reynolds Nelson, who wrote a really great book about this called Steel Driving Man, the legendary figure of John Henry was based on a real person who was an inmate at the Virginia Penitentiary uh, who was hired out as a convict, convict lease uh, laborer on the uh, Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad and died in uh, 1873. You know, and I think. Uh, Railroads from their very beginning are using lots of disadvantaged labor, including prison labor like John Henry. They're using lots of immigrant labor, lots of Irish labor uh, on the East Coast. They're using lots of Chinese labor on the West Coast. Uh, and so they are, you know, huge employers, but they're often relying upon um, 
very disadvantaged people to do do the labor and very dangerous work. I mean, this the, the death rate among people who are working on railroads, either building them or on running the trains themselves is very high in the 19th century. So it, it's difficult and, and dangerous work. Um, and some of the earliest strikes we have, national strikes we have in the United States are on railroads. Uh, the first really big one is in 1877, there's the Great Railroad Strike on the B&O Railroad, which was the uh, known to probably most listeners as one of the four railroads on uh, Monopoly. Um, the B&O Railroad cut their wages three times in 1877. This is uh, during the height of one of the great panics uh, of the 19th century. And workers uh, starting in West Virginia, but then spreading into Pennsylvania and Maryland and other places went on strike. And this wasn't a organized strike organized by a union. These were workers simply saying that we are not willing to, individual workers, but in mass, saying we are not willing to, to work for the wages people are, are trying to pay for, pay us. And it's a strike that really shuts down the entire country. Um, over about 69 days, uh, there are clashes between, between striking workers and, and state militias, striking workers and private armies that are raised by the railroad companies and but with federal troops. Uh, and, and it leads to, to more than 100 people dying in these clashes. Um, an even bigger strike in a few, about Two decades later, the Pullman strike in 1894. Um, the Pullman car was, a, was probably the most famous kind of passenger car in, in the 19th century. It was a, a luxury sleeping car. So if you're doing the, the long distance train trips, if you, if you were wealthy enough, you, you rode in a Pullman carriage. And, and Pullman gets involved in, in interesting labor disputes in two different ways. Uh, the first one is in this Pullman strike of, of 1894. Uh, George Pullman, who ran the company, who built these cars, uh, wanted his workers outside of the city of Chicago so he could have, you know, create a what he saw as being a wholesome life for them. So he built an industrial city for them to, to work in. So it's got the factory, but it's also got the houses and the shops and the library, and the church, and all of its owned by, by the corporation. It's a company town. It's a, it's a company town. And what happened in the company town is the uh, there was a depression that hit a panic in 1893. Pullman cuts wages, but he doesn't cut the rent or the prices of food in the shop. And so the workers in the town say, look, we can't pay the rent and based on, on the, you know, our reduced wages. So they go on strike and they are joined in this by... Uh, members of the American Railway Union, uh, which is led by Eugene Debs, who goes on to run for president five times. Uh, and they create a national strike where railroad workers refuse to work on trains that are carrying Pullman cars, um, which is a lot of trains. And uh, this you know, culminates in the government intervening saying that the railway union is uh, interfering with the delivery of the mail because mail is also delivered by trains. Um, and the strike is broken uh, because of that. Um, Pullman's also interested in, in, in as much as these uh, sleeping cars uh, were 
even though they're on tr all different kinds of trains on different uh, railways, they remained the property of, of the Pullman Company. Um, and they were essentially, they were described by one historian as like a hotel on rails. So they were supposed to be, you know, you, you got not only a sleeping accommodation, but you had people who pro provided you with food and other kinds of services. They had a whole set of porters that worked uh, for Pullman, something order of 12,000 porters. And Pullman decided to hire almost exclusively black men for these jobs. And he starts doing this in the late 1860s when you know, most of the people he's hiring are formerly enslaved people. Um, and he becomes the large, essentially the largest single employer of African-Americans in the country. Um, he doesn't pay them very well. Uh, they actually have to rely largely on tips from white passengers. Uh, but they, they become in the 20th century, one of the most, when they get organized, one of the most important black labor unions in the country. Uh, a. Philip Randolph establishes the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters in 1925. And Randolph and, and other members that that union are really critically important in the early phases of the civil rights movement. Um, E.D. Nixon, for instance, one of the leaders of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, bailed out Rosa Parks in 1955 and helped to orchestrate the, the bus boycott. Um, so it's a very interesting site for, for not only thinking about labor, but obviously about race uh, in the 19th century. Um, with the, all the, the Supreme Court decision that legitimized segregation, Plessy versus Ferguson, of course, is about railroad segregation. Um, and that's one of the first places in which you know, segregation is really enforced by law. Uh, so so uh, an observation and two questions, David. Uh, one thing that strikes me about the, the, the Pullman strikes is uh, because it's a network, and we use networking you know, today in a kind of in a, in a virtual sense, but this is a mm. literal network that, that uh, knits the country together. But it also means that a strike on one part of the network is incredibly disruptive for the entire system, which is one of the reasons why there was such concern about a possible strike uh, last week. Um, and, and so, so it, 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 the system integrates the country together, but also it, it creates a vulnerability there. Is that, is that a fair statement? I, I think it is. One of the things you see with railroads in the 19th century is they are the engine that stitches the country together. It's you know railroads that lead to the creation of things like time zones, and we've talked about that in the previous yeah. episode, how, how you know, this as an industry forces people to think about time in a very different way. The railroads themselves become more standardized by the end of the 19th century. Uh, in sort of the middle period, all the railroads had their own separate gauges. The width between the, the rails was different. Um, and those get standardized over time, but there's one moment in particular in, in 1886 in which Railroads across the South, which were among the most disorganized and in, in terms of their having different gauges, in a 36 hour period, they standardized the gauge of all the railroads in the South. So they all conformed to the standard that was used in the rest of the country. Uh, an enterprise that took a huge amount of labor uh, in a very short, frantic amount of time to, to narrow or widen the railroad gauges and, and the wheels and all the trains. 
so that uh, everybody was was on the same national standard. You know, and so, you know, the railroads look very physically as a manifestation helps to knit the country together in a way that it hadn't been before. But I think you're right that that, that knitting together then makes it that much more fragile and more liable to to you know it, the effects of one place having ripple effects throughout the economy. You know, and we've seen how perilous that is over the past few years with with you know the uh, supply chain shortages and the ways in which all, all the the economy is so profoundly connected that that a hiccup in one place will have have really deleterious effects everywhere. Yeah, so I have my two questions for you, but hang on for a second just to mm. follow on from that. I mean, one thing we talked about supply chains a couple of months ago, sure, um, and and we talked about the importance of the development of the shipping container, and the shipping container is important. I mean, it's crucially important in, in modern supply chains into the modern economy. And as the name suggests, shipping containers, of course, are great to go on 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 ships, but they're also designed to go directly onto railroad cars, especially uh, and uh, freight cars in the United States and, and, and then onto trucks. Right. Right. And so, right. It's, a, so yeah, it's like a every, yeah, one size fits all. Yeah, um, that's right. Which is a, a logical extension of the of the of the same thinking that says, OK, the gauges all have to be the same. It's about efficiently moving stuff from place from point A to point B. So my two questions for you with your 19th century hat on are, um, I guess, the big macro one. Uh, how important is the railroad to U.S. economic development? The U.S. is is a minor economic power in 1800. It's a major economic power, and it's about to become a global economic power, if, if, not, if it isn't already, by 1900 or 1914. So how important is the railroad to that? And... I'll just throw a second one at you too. This is this is like your oral exam, isn't it? Oh, okay, that's fine. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, uh, the first uh, time. I'm not a specialist in the Civil War, but I do remember studying it at one point. I even taught it from time to time before your your arrival. Um, one explanation for why the the Union won the Civil War was that it, it, its railroads were better and more efficient and more extensive than the South's and then the Confederacies. Is that true? So, uh, two two questions. Okay. Two questions. I'll, I'll do them in reverse order just for fun. Um, sometimes people compare how much railroad lines there were in the Union, the Confederacy in 1860 to say, oh, look, the, they, they're very different. And they were different. There were a lot more miles of railroads in, in, in Union states than in Confederate states. But the Confederate states actually had a lot of railroads. Um, you know, if you were to put you know, if you compare them side by side, they don't look that great. But if you compare the Confederacy to most of the rest of the world, it actually had a lot of railroads and a lot of miles of track and what have you. Um, and one of the things that, that makes railroads critical in the Civil War is this is one of the, the first wars in which rail is used to move soldiers around and rail is used to move artillery around. They actually had cannons that were occasionally placed on, on railroad cars, but especially to move food and supplies around. One of the things that railroads enabled Civil War armies to do was to become as large as they became. And it allows you to provide, you know, the size of the army in some ways is limited by the number amount of food you can provide and railroads enabled that. But we even have examples in the Civil War of uh, battles changing when reinforcements show up on the train and then they run off the train and get into the battle, uh, which is, you know, a very different style of warfare than um, 
what you see in, 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 in your era. Um, and, it, and I think it foreshadows, obviously, all the things you see in the 20th century. Uh, one of the things you find, though, with, with how Union victory is, in part, the, the Union had a more extensive rail system. But the Confederacy uh, had an issue where their rail system largely got worn out by the end of the war, that most of the steel manufacturing was, uh, was in the North, and the South simply actually wore out most of its railroad lines. There were really extensive connections between uh, Petersburg and Richmond. They built a new railroad between um, Danville and going into North Carolina uh, to help supply the Confederate capital and the Lee's army. And by the very end of the war, the trains are worn out. They can't uh, because they've been used too much. The, the cars are worn out, the uh, rail uh, track itself is worn out and they start to cannibalize railroads in the South in order to uh, maintain these sort of critical infrastructure. Uh, so much so that it's basically trash by the end of the war. Uh, and the trains are running very slowly to avoid uh, derailments. So it is a critically important infrastructure. As to your first question, I think, you know, the economic growth of the United States in the 19th century is fundamentally connected with railroads and with transportation revolution more broadly, right? There's, you know, a number of, of infrastructure changes. You know, there's a huge boom in canals in the early part of the 19th century, but canals work in some geographies and not in others. Railroads work in lots of places where you can't easily build canals. Uh, and I think the geography of the United States is particularly well suited for railroads uh, in that vein. But there was a huge cost of railroads. There's a huge cost in terms of you know, the, the way in which railroads organize labor. There were huge environmental costs of railroads um, to the land itself, um, to uh, the Wild animals, I mean, one, railroads essentially declared war on the bison in part because bison would stand on the tracks and trains would have accidents and all kinds of things. So railroads are paying people to kill off the bison, which has cascading effects on the environment because the bison are a very important species, but also cascading effects on native peoples who relied on bison for, for any number of, for food among other things. Um, so it, it, they were a tremendous engine of growth, but they were they also had a tremendous cost uh, that was associated, I think, with this railroad development. They weren't, uh, and obviously, burning a ton of coal isn't great, and we're feeling the effects of that now. So when we get to the twentieth century, what happens? I think there's a couple of things that happened in the 20th century. Um, I think the automobile, you know, in many ways replaces the passenger car for many people as, as the dominant mode of transportation that, um, you know, railroads can get you lots of places, but in terms of the, the breadth, the width and breadth of the United States, it just doesn't, the railroad network doesn't work as well as it would like say Britain, which has, has a very different kind of geography. And so I think the you know, embracing of the automobile in the 1920s, and then especially in the 1950s, really leads to a, a 
a decimation of at least passenger travel in the United States. Um, you know, so the Pullman uh, Palace Car Company, the, this sort of tremendous uh, enterprise of the 19th century, that it gets uh, split up in an antitrust lawsuit, but then it uh, falls apart in, in the early part of the 20th century. Um, so much so that I think relatively few people travel. You know, if you look at the sort of proportion of railroad traffic, uh, it drops pretty significantly, especially in the 60s and 70s, as the automobile becomes the ubiquitous form of transportation. What am I missing, Frank? Well, I, and of course, uh, flying gets cheaper as well. Hmm. So, so in terms of transcontinental travel, people will fly. Yes. Uh, I mean, I do think it, it, what's interesting in the 20th century is, I think what, what you've said is completely true. I think the car becomes dominant in the, as a mode of transport in the United States for, for individuals. Uh, however, uh, commuter rail networks in, in big cities are, and the, the use of trains to commute um, uh, kind of grows in importance in the post-war period as suburbs grow. And, and uh, at most major American cities have pretty decent commuter rail networks, uh, uh, which are, which are I think, an important element of the story uh, and often integrated into subway and, um, you know, transport in, within, within city, um, hmm. within major cities. And of course, freight rail continues. Um, I, I, what, one thing that strikes me is, you know, the U.S. rail network, if you look at maps of it and how it grows, it's, it's always, if you look at these kind of, I don't know, maps, you know, of railroads per decades and you start in the 18, you know, 1830 and you go forward and it grows and grows and grows, um, stops in about 1910. And, and I, I guess what you saw in 1920, what you see is, the network, on, on one hand, it's a great achievement. It's taken almost a century or 90, 80 to 90 years, but the network is pretty extensive by 1910, 1920, but it doesn't grow much after that. And uh, we talked about high-speed rail at, at, the top of the, at the top of this episode. And, you know, the infrastructure, the rail infrastructure in the United States grew very rapidly. It became quite extensive, but it hasn't grown much in the subsequent century. And I think that's made it difficult, for example, to develop high-speed rail in the United States. And that's because what we see in the 20th century is, of course, the growth of the, of the road network and the and interstate highways after the war mm. and everything else. So, so there's a different kind of transport infrastructure develops in the United States, but the rail infrastructure remains somewhat fixed. And I think that's, um, well, I just, I would make that by way of an observation. But again, I think the railroad's incredibly important. And you, you mentioned John Henry. I mean, the, the popular culture impact of the railroad, uh, we could do a whole episode on that. And that, that remains. But in the 20th century and into the 21st century, it's important in ways that are less appreciated, I think. You know, freight trains are not, you know, uh, I, I guess don't, don't really impact people's uh, thinking in the way that they should, because we just, you know, stuff appears in stores and you don't think about how it got there, but the freight network is incredibly important. When there was a very brief railroad strike, freight strike in 1992, uh, the Bush administration claimed that that strike cost the United States $1 billion a day. That was 30 years ago. Hmm. One would presume that, the, you know, if, if we'd had a strike last week and there's still a danger that there could be a strike in the next coming weeks, if, if the deal that was reached last week isn't isn't ratified by the unions, you know, that's the scale of the cost. Uh, 
um, or potential costs. So, so we, we're, we're the United States is still very, very dependent on railroads, but doesn't really. I, I, I would guess that many Americans don't appreciate that. I could be wrong. I, I think I think that's right. I mean, the the the, the passenger rails ha, don't have the sort of iconic. People don't. Are, it is invisible in large cases. You know, these trains are often passed in the middle of the night. Um, unless you're stopped behind one in in traffic, you, you tend not to realize how huge they are and how much an, an enormous amount of volume they are carrying. Um, you know, and outside of, of you know cartoons where they're uh, you know seem to be somewhat ubiquitous, um, you know, freight trains are, are not as, as as present in the American imagination. Um, and you know the the working conditions it seems like on, on railroads at least based on accounts of the, the strike that, that was temporarily averted last week it seems like they, they, that they have you know they've obviously improved since the 19th century but they're still pretty bad and, and I think that the, the complaints of the the railroad workers were, were seem like they're very legitimate uh, complaints against their their employers in terms of you know, time off and scheduling and, and what have you. Yeah, I think that's true. Although, again, as a, as a because of automation, hmm. uh, there are just far fewer railroad workers than there were. Yeah. Oh, to be sure. And, right? and like so railroad is no longer the large, one of the largest employers in the country. Yes. Right. There were 2.1 million railroad workers in 1920, and I think there are 200,000 or something today. It's a very, very small, uh, relatively small number, and that's because of automation. Hmm. Um, but you're right. It's still it's it, it's 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 hard work and it's dangerous work and it is you know as we talked about with supply chains a few weeks ago and we talked about the vulnerability of the network uh, a few minutes ago uh it, it's a kind of unseen and unappreciated um uh, element of the infrastructure of of the united states and hence the global economy uh that i i don't think people necessarily appreciate has there been a reawakening in American labor in the past few years? It feels that way. We've seen a lot more strikes. We've seen some successful, and we, we've not just seen strikes, we've seen threats of strikes that seem to have resulted in, in, um, in settlements that favor labor. Uh, I think it's too early to tell. And we're seeing a lot of labor activism in the, United, in the UK too at the moment. Oh, I, mean, I think to some definitely. extent, this is a result of the economic unheaval, uh, upheaval, excuse me, um, that we've seen post-COVID and uh, the economic instability uh, that we've seen in the, in the past few years. And I think we're seeing a reaction against that. I think it's too early to tell whether this is a kind of, um, whether we're seeing a kind of renaissance for organized labor or not. Um, but there are some, hints that that might be what we're seeing. I mean, there are lots of reasons not to be optimistic, not least because organized labor in the United States does not have the clout or the protections it once did. So, so uh, it's, if it's a reawakening, it's coming from a very, very, um, a point of, of great weakness, I think, but uh, maybe, what do you think? Well, I think, uh, I think you're right that it's coming from a point of great weakness, and so that there's there's uh, the the potential for upward uh, growth is, is pretty significant. But you know we're seeing evidence not only of, of union activity in, in railroad workers, which have been obviously 
unionized in a variety of ways for, for, for a very long time. Uh, but in um, in other industries, so like uh, Starbucks employees are, are establishing unions and Amazon and Amazon and, and various other kinds of, uh, you know, gig work kinds of, of activities uh, are, are people are thinking, if not specifically in terms of a labor union, about how to sort of collectively bargain for for better conditions. And I think you're right, the pandemic had a and the sort of dislocations resulting from the pandemic um, have really pushed people to reconsider, uh, you know, their, their, what the meaning of work is, and and how they relate to to both their employer and to their fellow employees. Uh, One of the things that, that strikes me thinking about the, the railroad strike we just, that just got averted is, is the role of the federal government in it. Joe Biden, of course, great fan of the railroads himself, man who, who rode the train, I think, every day for like, seemed like four decades uh, because he lived in Delaware and worked in DC, uh, or at least his family lived in Delaware. Um, you know, and historically, the federal government, when it came down on, on railroad strikes, almost uh, invariably came down on the side of the railroads over the railroad workers. We saw that in 1877. We saw that in 1894. We've seen that in other big railroad strikes that the government has sided with the, the railroad owners. Um, one of the things that struck me about last week is, is that that Biden seemed to come down, if he came down on one side at all, was much more on the side of the, the, the workers than on uh, the railroad uh, employers. Yeah, now it remains to be seen whether this deal is going to be ratified, but it, that does seem to be the case. And I, there was an there's an interesting contrast there with um, what happened in 1992 when, when uh, the first George Bush was president and Congress very rapidly passed legislation to, to settle that industrial action. But it really... Um, seem to favor the, the railroads rather than the, than the striking workers. And some Democrats who supported that legislation because of the impact the strike was having on the economy um, really kind of faced a lot of criticism from their constituents for, for betraying labor. It's, there's, a, there's a debate about what that 1992 legislation meant but, but, uh, and, and how pro-labor or pro-management it was. But uh, the what we've seen in the past week or so does seem to suggest that the, the administration seems to have taken a more pro-labor stance, certainly than what we saw 30 years ago. That might simply be the difference between uh, the first George Bush, who, of course, was a Republican, and, and Joe Biden, who, who is not just a Democrat. He's a Democrat of a certain vintage, and this isn't a crack about his age. He's an old guy, but he remembers when you know union labor was democratic, and and um, you know the Democrats and the unions were 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 in pretty close alignment. So I think I think there is a kind of there could be a generational element to to Biden's approach to this. And again, that's that's not just a kind of roundabout way to say hey, he's old. I think his age might might in fact. Uh, uh, condition his approach to these these questions because he can remember a time when the unions and the Democrats were, were much more closely aligned aligned than they have been in recent years. Uh, I think I think that's exactly right. 
All right, Frank, I think it's time for, for last drops. What have you got for us? Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I've mentioned the Getting Word project here at Monticello in the past, which is a great project for their, 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 they track down the, the uh, oral histories of families of, of enslaved people and others who lived at Monticello. And, and it's a great project and I commend it to you. But I, I have a kind of, uh, I want to give a shout out to a guy named Andrew Davenport, who's the director of that project now. And Andrew is a PhD student at Georgetown. He's finishing a, a PhD there. Um, and I, I spent a really fabulous afternoon with him yesterday. And he took me, Monticello, for people who visited, is of course a site of great historic interest and importance. The bit you can visit is about 300 acres, but the entire space that the, the Thomas Jefferson Foundation owns is about 2,500 acres. Uh, the original plantation was 5,000 acres, it should be said. Mm. Uh, but but Andrew took me to cut some of the bits that you don't get to visit very, uh, that, that most people don't get to visit, and and uh, took me around and showed me the the um, original landscape, which of course has been changed. One, one point he made to me was, well, we were in what appeared to be a, a kind of primeval forest that was quite beautiful. He said, of course, there were no trees here when, when this was the, was the plantation because there sure. was, there, you know, that was a tobacco field. Um, but he took me around and showed me this, this landscape that was um, really, really quite amazing. And quite powerful i mean there, there 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 are he showed me spaces where they believe there are um you know the the, the uh, that, that were burial grounds for enslaved people who who worked on the plantation and so on so it's a it was it was a very kind of special achievement but i want to pay tribute to andrew and the arch both the getting word team but also the archaeologists at monticello who who are uh, writing a much deeper history of that place than the one we get just from you know thomas jefferson's papers Great. What about you? what about you, David? Well, I, I want to uh, highlight uh, an article um, that I read about uh, renovations at the uh, CIA museum. It's the 75th anniversary of the CIA, so they have um, renovated their uh, their museum in Langley, Virginia, at the CIA headquarters. And the article goes into great detail about the the artifacts they have there. Uh, various gadgets from, from the Cold War era, you know, spycraft, uh, but more recent stuff. They have a scale model of Osama bin Laden's compound that they, they used in, in planning the, the raid on that. Um, and a bunch of other cool um, spy-related stuff. Uh, so, so it was a fascinating article, um, except for the fact that uh, this renovated museum at Langley uh, is uh, not open to the public. <laughs> okay. So they took the BBC reporter and a few other people on a guided tour. Uh, but uh, yeah, you got to have, have top secret security clearance in order to get into this said museum and see all the stuff. So what's the point? The argument that, that has made is that the museum is there in part as a pedagogical tool for CIA employees, for them to understand both the history of the agency and its mission and stuff. So yes, it, it sounds like it's a wonderful museum. The renovations sound, you know, the artifacts there sound really important, but uh, neither of us can go see it. Do they have any affiliation? Because there's that spy museum in Washington, or is that is that an independent? That, that that's a whole separate enterprise. This is like actually at the CIA, right? Um, right. So, so yeah. 
a wonderful, it sounds like a wonderful exhibit, which we will never, ever get to see. So, sorry, l- let me just sum up. I just recommended to people the parts of Monticello they're unlikely to be able to see, and you've endorsed a museum that nobody can go to. So, good at least for you've us. been to that part of Monticello. I don't. <laughs> um, well, I think it's fascinating that there is all of this history that is uh, just slightly out of reach that for, 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 for even, uh, you know, professional historians we can't quite get there but uh you know we'll, we'll see if if any of our listeners have top secret clearance or part of the cia and want to to get us into the museum I, i'd love to see it but uh you know, so. if they do david they wouldn't tell us <laughs> <laughs> well you never know they might really like the show all right until next week frank all right david be Cheers. well The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes. 